Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Bill Reel's Disciplinary Council, the recording. Bill Reel had his disciplinary council with the LDS Church in the stake where he lives on Tuesday, November 27, 2018, beginning at 8.30 p.m., Since that time, rumors have circulated far and wide that somebody somehow may have made a recording of what transpired during that disciplinary council, which was held behind closed doors. Well, much to my surprise, earlier this morning, what should appear in my inbox but an email from a blocked account, an unknown anonymous source with an attachment, an audio attachment, containing a recording of the entirety of Bill Reel's Disciplinary Council. I have no knowledge as to how this recording was made. I have no knowledge as to who made this recording. But because I know that there is a widespread interest in this recording and out of my sense of public duty, I am going to play the entirety of the recording here on this episode of Radio Free Mormon. I am going to play this recording straight through from beginning to end without commercial break and without any interruptions for comments from yours truly. But after listening to this recording myself, I was left with the distinct impression that the stupidest thing any state president could do would be to gather all of his top leadership behind closed doors and give Bill Reel 60 minutes to say whatever he wanted to them. But that is exactly what Bill Reel's state president did, and you are about to hear what happened at the Disciplinary High Council as a result. And if you listen closely enough, you may be able to hear the shelves of some of the high councilmen present begin to crack. So enough of the introduction, play the tape. Okay, 
are you?
in that. I don't know that I would want to say yes or no. I don't think we live in a black and white world. Um, I think there's plenty of people who disagreed in 19, prior to 1978 about where we were at on race. I think people have a right to raise a concern or a criticism if that concern, criticism is valid. So I'm not, I don't think it's fair to say yes or no. Um, I, have some, I have gotten some evidence. Please. Thank you. 
with the top top, even with profanity. Um, the picture also had a lot of um, over it, as you see here. Um, also on May 29th, uh, once again, he called another apostle, the Lord Elias. He called a statement by Elder Collins, and the number of Find you. Ask, and you shall receive, knock, and it shall be opened to you. 
I have made myself available to you to discuss with us. During our second meeting together, I asked you to stop with the attacks on the church and its leader while we work on some of these questions. Uh, since then, your efforts have, have your efforts to put down the church and its leaders have actually intensified. Um, I know you made some comments on this in the letter about us meeting together, and that I kind of framed you in that. There's really no framing because we're not. That's not the charges. The charges is not that we're not meeting with you. It has very little to do with what we're doing here. The charges is the opposition to church. Um, in addition to the opposition of church leaders, your articles and podcasts have also targeted the most simple and sublime truths of the gospel. This is true in the podcast title, The Mythical Jesus. Um, in some of these podcasts, we have to make the power of and not the Holy Ghost. And um, attacking and preaching against exactly what the church uh, is trying to promote. And uh, these are. These are the subjects we have with the evidence that we have uh, for you. Um, for the real, I'll, like I said, we agree. I'll give you 60 minutes now to give your your response. We do you, not interrupt you. So, um, do you mind if I get a drink of water first? during the prayer, thank you. The prayer mentioned like being open to listening. And when I've heard about these disciplinary courts in the past, people turn to pretend to put their heads down and not pay attention. And I just ask that you give me 60 minutes of listening. And when you're and when we're done, if if you feel like I'm I'm an apostate, great. Then excommunicate me and, and so be it. Um, but I hope you go listen. Because my story in some ways is your story. So when I was uh, 17 years old, I found the church, and it was the most beautiful thing in the world. I was using drugs, I was making bad choices, I was shoplifting, and I discovered Mormonism, and it was gorgeous. And it was like it picked me up off of one path and it set me down on another, and it changed my life. So I'm a 17-year-old kid and I joined the church, and I'm committed, I'm both feet in. Uh, first calling I served in was an assistant ward mission leader, then I was a secretary in the Elders Quorum Presidency immediately following. I was a counselor in the Elders Quorum Presidency. I was the Elders Quorum President. I was a bishop or a, a counselor in the bishopric, and by 29 years old, I served as a bishop in the Sandusky Ward in Ohio, a Midwestern Ward, about 120 attending, um, small ward, good people. And, and the trouble is that when we're in a religious system, we, we struggle to recognize if our system has any issues because we tend to listen to the authorities of our tribe and we're skeptical of anything that comes from outside our tribe. And so tonight I hope to share with you a little bit of our history so that you can understand where I'm coming from. And then once I've said my piece, feel free to, again, do whatever needs to be done. Um, when I was 32 years old, I was halfway through serving as a bishop and I had a faith crisis. And my faith crisis came because from the time I was 17 until that 32 years old, I was reading everything about Mormonism. 
I was reading about its history from faithful sources. I was reading from critical sources. I was going back to the original source material. And I simply wanted to know Mormonism inside and out. And as I started to discover some issues, um, I, I found faithful answers that worked, but they only worked if you understood the issue at a surface level. And then once you understood the issue, you realized it became way more complicated than the church let on it being. So let me share a couple things. First, we like to talk about Joseph Smith dabbled in treasure digging. And most of us in this room maybe don't even know what that is. Joseph Smith in 1819, and, and again, I, I don't want you to take my word for it. If something I say tonight makes you uncomfortable, go look it up. Go to the original sources, read both sides, and make up your own mind. In 1819, a year before the first vision, Joseph Smith is 13 years old, and he borrows a seer stone from Sally Chase. Sally Chase is a town scryer. She takes her stone, she looks at it, and she tells other people in the town where their lost items are. Okay? In 1819, Joseph borrows that stone, he looks into it, and he's told where his own seer stone is. And he's told it's 150 miles away. That's what he alleges. So he disappears, he comes back, and now he has a white translucent stone. Um, in 1823, while digging a well on the Willard Chase property, he finds a second stone. It's the one the church has recently talked about, egg-shaped. The church has had that stone in its possession all along. But my gut tells me if we went around the room and we talked about what story each of you grew up with in terms of the Book of Mormon translation, each of you would say there were Nephite spectacles buried in a box, and that's what Joseph Smith used. The church only recently, because we live in an Internet age, feels compelled to now tell us a fuller story. That stone was in their possession, was used to bless the Manti Temple. So in 18, uh, 20, sorry, 1823, he gets that second seer stone. A money digger in, or a treasure digger is somebody who claims to know where buried treasures are. Joseph Smith would get people in the town to pay him money. He would take his seer stone, put it in a hat, bury his face into it, excluding all light, and then he would tell people where Spanish treasure was buried. The trouble was he never found it. He'd get paid, he'd tell them where to dig, and as they dug a hole, he would say, oh, it slipped further into the earth. It's gone. He scammed people. And we don't want to hear that, because we like to set our prophet up on a pedestal. But it's more than that. When you understand treasure digging, you understand that Joseph Smith told people that there was buried treasure in hills, protected by guardian spirits, using a seer stone which also represents, too, a similar story, right? Moroni in the gold plates, buried in a hill. Moroni's the guardian spirit, and he uses a seer stone. We don't talk about that history because it's not faith-promoting. The first vision. My guess is if I went around the room, we all know the story. During this time of great excitement, my mind was called up to serious reflection and great uneasiness. And though my feelings were deep and often poignant, Still, I kept myself aloof from the various parties. We know the story. We taught it on our missions, right? Here's the trouble, though. There are four accounts of the first vision. The earliest one was written in 1832 in Joseph Smith's personal journal, written by his own hand. In that journal, he writes down that he went only to have his sins forgiven, and when he talks about being visited by supreme beings, he only mentions Jesus Christ. There was no Heavenly Father. His own handwriting... Our own scholars, when talking about the 1838 account that we use as the official account, our own scholars, Richard Bushman, if anybody knows that name, Richard Bushman says that account is most likely written by Sidney Rigdon or George Robinson, who were scribes of Joseph Smith. It's not his language. 
It's not the way Joseph wrote things. So we've told one story that's written much later, not in Joseph's writing, and we ignore a story that's much different that comes in 1832. And the trouble is in Mormonism, we stand up and we bear testimony of things. We bear testimony that we know on a spring morning in a grove of trees that Joseph Smith prayed and he was visited by God the Father and his son Jesus, but that's not the 1832 account. But again, we don't know that. Here's why. Joseph Fielding Smith was called as church historian in 1921. Sometime between 1921 and 1940, Joseph Fielding Smith cut that 1832 account out of Joseph's personal journal with a penknife and stored it away in a church vault in the church historian's office. And he referred to it as a peculiar first vision, and he mentioned it to very few people. He didn't want us to know it. Now, you can go on today and see it because in 1965, Joseph Fielding Smith, the rumor got out, and Gerald and Sandra Tanner, who were critics of the church, started to go public with the fact that there was this other First Vision account. So what does he do? He takes it out of the church vault, he gets some tape, and he tapes it back into Joseph Smith's journal. You can go on LDS.org today and you can look at that 1832 account. It is taped back, back in. You can see the cellophane tape there that places it back in the Joseph's journal. The Book of Mormon translation, again, each of us grew up being told about Nephite and spectacles, the Urim and Thummim, buried in a box. But that's not the story. And the reason the church didn't want to tell us about seer stones was because once we know there's stones involved instead of the spectacles, the next logical question is where do those stones come from? And now we're back to talking about treasure digging and Joseph duping people for money. Um, a scholar, Dan Vogel, wrote an article that points to 17 different treasure digs in the Palmyra area. Uh, here's another detail. We're not talking about just the six foot deep hole in the ground. We're talking about essentially digging out a cave into a mound of earth. Having a dozen people work for days on end digging a hole, thinking they're gonna get a treasure and having paid to find it, only to be told it doesn't exist. My guess is none of you, or very few of you, have heard those stories. We have passing quotes in Mormonism. We like to say things like, uh, these, there's the quote from Joseph himself, that uh, it wasn't a very um, uh, financially beneficial endeavor. He got paid $14, month, or $14 a month and he gave it up quickly. That's not true. He, he was a treasure digger for years. And these things involve folk magic and magic circles and cutting dogs' throats and sheep's throats. But again, none of us are told that story. I wasn't told that story. It was only by reading and diving into the sources and looking at journal entries from church members as well as critics where those things are talked about. Brigham Young himself talks about seer stones and Joseph's treasure digging. So we have this story of the Book of Mormon translation. And the whole time the church has got that stone in the vault, but they don't want you to know about it. And it's only until we live in an internet age where they see members left and right coming across this information that they are now saying like, oh, we have to talk about it because people are leaving. People are finding this stuff and they're leaving. The Book of Mormon itself, I love the Book of Mormon. I still look through its pages, but here's the problem. It contains a lot of 19th century material, phrases, sermons, geographic locations close to Joseph Smith's own home, stories. Um, let me give you one quote, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting a little nervous. So Richard Bushman, this is a scholar, faithful scholar, holds the office of church patriarch. 
He says, translating the book without the plates, even in sight, wrapped up in a cloth. Again, notice too, we have pictures. We have artwork on our walls that shows Joseph using Niram and Thummim and looking at the plates and translating. That's not true. The plates weren't in sight or they were covered up with a cloth. Joseph put a stone in a hat, buried his face into it, excluded all the light, and then dictated the Book of Mormon. Bushman says, translating the book without plates even in sight, wrapped up in a cloth on the table. It's not something that comes right off the pages. That is, the characters on the plates. So we don't know how that works. And then there's the fact that there's phrasing everywhere, long phrases, that if you Google them, you find them in 19th century writings. The theology of the Book of Mormon is very much 19th century theology. And it reads like 19th century understanding of the Hebrew Bible, as an Old Testament, that is. It has Christ in it the way Protestants saw Christ everywhere in the Old Testament. Okay, there's other translation productions. There's the Book of Abraham. We were all told a story about a man who went through Kirtland, Ohio, who had papyri and mummies, and the church bought those. And Joseph told us that those were the writings of Abraham written by his own hand. That papyri was lost, except in, 19, in the 1960s, that papyri surfaced again. We thought it was lost in the great Chicago fire. It wasn't. Another museum had it. The church bought it. The trouble was now, even our church Egyptologists, when they read it and look at it, we now know what Egyptian translates into because of the Rosetta Stone. The Book of Abraham papyri does not translate into the Book of Abraham. It is a standard Egyptian common funeral text that has nothing to do with Abraham. It's not the writings of Abraham. It's not written, written by his own hand. The facsimiles that we have in our scriptures, those facsimiles, Joseph named every single picture on those facsimiles. Every single one of those, Egyptologists acknowledge they're all wrong. He didn't get the translation correct. So now what we've done is we've come up with a new theory, and that theory is called the Catalyst Theory. And we say that the book of the papyri is not the book of Abraham, but it, it prompted Joseph to, to essentially receive this story, even though he thought it was on the papyri. But do you see the trick there? We've walked it back to a place where neither one is discernible as an outsider. We've essentially moved the story to a place where whether it's a fraud or whether it's real scripture, it comes out of Joseph's head either way. And there's no way to discern as an outsider. We're no longer teaching the stories that each of you grew up with. The book of Moses. The book of Moses contains exact phrases and sentences and sentence structures from Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4. Now that book was written before the New Testament. In other words, it's anachronism. It, it would be like if I had a painting on the wall, or a photograph, I should say, on the wall, of Abraham Lincoln holding an iPhone. It's out of place. The book of Moses contains New Testament sentence structure that is not, shouldn't be there. It doesn't belong there. The Joseph Smith translation, BYU itself just released studies where Haley Lamont, who's a student, and Thomas Wayman, who is a professor, acknowledged that while we were taught that the Joseph Smith translation was a restoration of the Bible that had been lost or corrupted, our own scholars at BYU now acknowledge it was a direct borrowing, which means plagiarism, from a contemporary source, Adam Clark's commentary. BYU acknowledges that long phrases and paragraphs come straight out of a book that was accessible to Joseph Smith in his own day. 
This only makes sense if you're willing to make drastic shifts in your beliefs. Again, the story we were raised with, I was raised with, and each of you doesn't hold up. The last Joseph Smith translation production is called the Kinderhook Plates. There were a couple of people who wanted to deceive the prophet Joseph Smith. They created really small bell-shaped plates. They etched them with acid, making them look old, buried them in the ground, and then went and got a Latter-day Saint to help them dig, saying, let's go find something. And what do they find? They find these plates that they buried. They take them to the prophet Joseph Smith, and he actually begins translating them, translating two or three sentences from the Kendrick plates before, for whatever reason, he quits. So there's, there's some of the early Mormon history. What about polygamy? How many of you were raised thinking that Joseph Smith was a monogamist? How many of you knew that he had married 14, 15, 16-year-old girls? And we like to say that oh, marriage was different back then. That's not true. That's the argument we come up with. But when we actually look at the data on marriages, they're not much different than what the ages are today of males and females getting married. Also, when a young girl did get married in that day, it was a young girl and a young guy. So you'd have a 14-year-old and a 19-year-old. But what we find in early Mormonism is 14-year-olds and 57-year-olds. Brethren, Fanny Elger was Joseph Smith's first intimate relationship away from Emma. Emma didn't know about it. If you go to LDS.org, there are gospel topic essays. The essay on polygamy, you have to read, you have to click read more, it'll open up further. Then it's going to ask you if you want to read more about it. You have to click extra links. It sends you to an essay titled Polygamy in Kirtland in Nauvoo. When you read that essay, it acknowledges that Fanny Elger was a maid in the Smith home. Emma didn't even know about her. And Joseph had an intimate relationship with her, 14 years old. The, uh, another story, Lucy Walker, she's 15 years old. Again, I want you to picture, for you guys who have daughters, I have two daughters. Picture for a moment, you have daughters. The Lucy Walker, her mother dies. Joseph Smith comes to her and sends her father on a mission, promising to take care of his kids as his own. So Joseph Smith sends Lucy Walker's father on a mission, promises to take care of his kids, the Walker kids, as his own children. He even goes out into public, and Lucy writes in her journal, again, these are their journals, not me just taking a critic's words. Lucy Walker says, when we went out into public, he referred to us as his own children. But when she turned 16, Joseph also proposed to her to be a plural wife of his. My guess is not a single one of you have heard of Lucy Walker. Think about that for a moment, the predicament that puts you in. You either have to accept that Heavenly Father is the kind of God who is okay taking a father-daughter relationship and making it a husband-wife relationship. Now, I'm hoping that sits really uncomfortable with you, because it should. A 16-year-old girl living in the Smith home, propositioned by Joseph Smith, again without Emma Smith's knowledge. And by the way, the LDS.org essay acknowledges that Emma did not know about many of these relationships. The Partridge sisters were another set of sisters who lived in the Smith home. Uh, they were 19 and 22. Joseph propositioned them without Emma's knowledge and got himself sealed to them and had an intimate relationship with them without either one of them knowing about each other and without Emma knowing about them. Soon after, Emma finally gave permission for Joseph to enter a plural marriage. 
Emma suggests that he be sealed to these Partridge sisters, but unbeknownst to her, he had already done that. So what does he do? He holds a second mock sealing in order for her to think it's the first one. Is that fidelity, brethren? Is that what you would do to your wives? Is marry other women behind your wives' backs without your wives knowing and have second marriage ceremonies without your wife even knowing that that had occurred? The Lawrence sisters were another young couple, or a young set of sisters, uh, 16 and I believe 17. They also worked in the Smith home and were wives of the prophet Joseph Smith. Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner is a young lady who goes out when the Book of Commandments are being, uh, the press is being destroyed and they're blowing all around and she saves them in her dress. And we're told that story in our manuals. The story we don't tell is that Joseph propositioned her at 12 years old. They ended up, she ended up being a plural wife of Joseph years later. Joseph had at least 34 wives, most of which were young teenage girls or women already married to other men, which is called polyandry. Again, the LDS.org essay on the church's website acknowledges that. Emma was the 23rd wife sealed to Joseph Smith. Not the first, the 23rd. Now, I get it. He's the prophet of our faith. But are you comfortable with that kind of fidelity? Melchizedek priesthood restoration. Peter, James, and John. Richard Bushman, again, a faithful Active scholar in the church acknowledges that the information on Peter and James and John comes so late in church history that it is totally acceptable to be believed to be a later fabrication. David Whitmer himself writes that Peter, James, and John come, those stories about that priesthood restoration come way late in the timeline. It's not Nobody's talking about it when it happens. And I like we like the story of it's too sacred. That's not what's going on. The very witnesses of the Book of Mormon don't hear these stories. Oliver Cowdery does. From Joseph, he's saying he knows it. He's not telling anybody. We don't get any public record of these stories being shared. But again, Peter, James, and John show up way late in the story. Race and the priesthood. George Albert Smith from Brigham Young from 1852. In 1978 with Spencer W. Kimball, our church taught that those of color were less valiant in the pre-mortal life and that they carried the curse of Cain. We, in, on, a, on a multitude of occasions, including first presidency letters in 1948 or 49, as well as 1962 or 63, we declare that those things are doctrine. So you have one prophet who says, I know the mind and will of God, that those of color were less valiant and were cursed from the pre-existence. Today, if you go to the LDS.org Gospel Topic Essay, today's leaders disavow those doctrines and call them disavowed theories. So we went from having one prophet know for sure one thing to having a later prophet say he was wrong. So once you make that leap, you have to recognize that prophets can be deeply wrong on very important things, even the very foundational doctrines of the church. Brigham Young taught what was called the Adam-God doctrine, where Brigham Young taught that Adam was our Heavenly Father, and that Elohim was our Heavenly Grandfather. Later on, Bruce R. McConkie and Spencer W. Kimball disavowed those doctrines. Those, that doctrine of the Adam-God 
was taught at the Vale at the St. George Temple. It was part of the presentation at the Vale. It was official doctrine of the church, taught by a prophet of God, and then disavowed by later prophets. So if the Holy Ghost is effective, then how can one prophet be adamant that ABC is true, only to have 50 years later another prophet say it's completely false? Lamanite DNA. In the LDS.org Gospel Topic Essay, the church recently acknowledged that all Native Americans, there is no Jewish DNA that is in the right timeline. In other words, it shows up in Native Americans at the right part where the Jaredites show up or where the Nephites show up. The church essentially says there's no way anymore to know who's a Lamanite and who's not. We used to go around and anybody who had tan skin, whether they were a Polynesian, whether they lived in Mexico, whether they lived in South America, it didn't matter. We called them a Lamanite. And today the church acknowledges that we no longer know who's a Lamanite and who's not because the DNA isn't there. So the very people that we propose the Book of Mormon is written to, the Lamanites, we no longer know who to give the book to and say, you're a Lamanite. Again, our doctrines are changing drastically. And they're doing it in a way that you're not even aware that it's happening unless you're paying attention and you're reading away from just the correlated sources that you get in the three-hour block. But go read the Gospel Topic essays. See if they make you nervous in terms of the teachings you each grew up with in Mormonism. And see if the things in those essays match up with the story you were told growing up. Handicapped kids. We were all raised in the church believing that those who were handicapped were the most valiant of our Heavenly Father's spirits. But here's what Harold B. Lee taught. He said, this privilege of obtaining a mortal body on this earth is seemingly so priceless that those in the spirit world, even though unfaithful or not valiant, were undoubtedly permitted to take mortal bodies, although under the penalty of racial, physical, or nationalistic limitations. Do you see that shift? We used to teach that handicapped kids were the least valiant in the premortal life. Does anybody here have a handicapped child? Can you imagine being a parent of a kid and having you, the prophet of the Lord teach that your kid was the least valiant of the spirits in the spirit world? That's atrocious. So which is it, brethren? Is it one prophet who says they're the most valiant? Or is it another prophet who says they're the least? What about prophets themselves? We read the Old Testament, we read about Jesus in the New Testament, and we see miracles left and right. On my podcast, I once asked if there's anybody out there who's had a finger cut off, been born without an arm, had an ear cut off, had lost their eyesight and got a blessing to have those things restored, to come forward, I'd love to hear their story. If we're honest with ourselves, when I say God magic, there are no of those great supernatural miracles anymore. We all say, yeah, you know, my daughter had the flu and I gave her a blessing and it went away. But there, there aren't the great miracles of, of the biblical times anymore. And yet we live in an age of verifiable history. You see, the moment there became a media and newspapers and journals and now smartphones and the internet, Heavenly Father seems to have reduced significantly, almost to nothing, his ability to send fires down from heaven in order to uh, turn someone into salt for turning back and looking at a city, to part seas, 
to put manna on the ground. Those things, if we're honest, those kinds of miracles don't happen today. In the Book of Mormon, we, we have our prophets who raise a hand or say words and smite a critic dumb for three days or smite them deaf for three days. But my gut tells me that we all understand that nobody could raise a hand today and strike a critic dumb for three days or deaf. Those things are gone. So your only option is to look at those stories and say, I wonder if they're embellished. I wonder if they're myth. I wonder if those stories, why, why did those stories happen that way then? And now in an age of verifiable history, those things don't happen that way anymore. You can't restore limbs. Even though Jesus restored an ear, we don't have stories anymore of limbs restored. We have some people who get healed from cancer and we have others who die. That's just human nature. That's just the way it works. I want to finish in terms of uh, talking about a little bit of the unhealthiness of the church, but I want to bridge it with this. When I talk about the messiness of our history, <clears throat> when I talk about the messiness of our history, there's a thousand more data points <clears throat> where our story gets off. But what, we, what I did, and what I'm guessing each of you do, is say, that doesn't matter. For the real life, it doesn't matter. I've had some sacred experiences. I've felt the spirit. But here's the trick. In the end, Latter-day Saints dismiss things that people like me say. Because it doesn't matter. We've had these experiences. I understand that. I've had deeply profound experiences, too. When I served as a bishop, I had incredible experiences that were spiritual in nature. The trouble is people of all faiths have spiritual experiences. And people of all faiths re receive reassurances that their truth claims of their religious system are just as true as the answers that we get about ours. The other thing we run into is a thing called elevation emotion. Mormonism imposes that the Holy Ghost is a burning in the bosom, a peaceful feeling, an increased love for goodness and truth. The problem is in psychology we have a better explanation. It's called elevation emotion. Elevation emotion is an emotion elicited by witnessing virtuous acts of remarkable moral goodness. It is experienced as a distinct feeling of warmth and expansion that is accompanied by appreciation and affection for the individual whose exceptional conduct is being observed. You see, this happens to everyone. It has nothing to do with truth. They can actually take people and lie to them. But if the person being lied to perceives a virtuous act taking place, they feel warm in their chest, they feel an expansionness in their body, and they are drawn towards goodness in the world. Everybody who's a human being experiences that. But as Mormons, we've monopolized it. We've said, no, that's only here. We have the Holy Ghost. And I get it. We like to say, yeah, other people feel the Holy Ghost too. The trouble is they're everybody, us and them, are feeling this feeling around true things and false things. So if the Holy Ghost is dependable, that shouldn't be the case. Now I want to talk a little bit about the unhealthiness that's in our church. <clears throat> First in this room. So I've spent 20 years reading everything. I've interviewed our scholars. I've talked to authors of historical books in Mormonism. I've talked to Richard Bushman. I've talked to Terrell Givens. I've spoken to Adam Miller. And I don't know if these names even ring a bell with you, but these are the best scholars we have. Patrick Mason. Um, I've spoken to Elder Holland face to face. I've spoken to Marlon Jensen by phone and by email. Elder Holland by phone and by email as well. 
Do you know what they tell me? They say, we don't have answers for any of this. You're right, Brother Real. There are serious questions in our history. We're working to put out a better history. But the trouble is they're doing it in a way that you're not even knowing it's happening. And it feels very deceptive. In talking with all of these folks, um, it becomes easy for people in a room like this to say, yeah, Brother Real's just saying sometimes time stuff. That's not true. And again, I don't want you to take my word for it. I'd ask you to go read. I'd ask you to challenge yourselves and to look into what you believe and, and just open up just the smallest space in your mind to say, I wonder if the story I was taught isn't the truth. And if you're willing to do that, like the information's out there. Richard Bushman recently wrote Rough Stone Rolling. Uh, it's a Deseret book. You can read Patrick Mason Planted. You can read uh, any book by Terrell Gibbons will go into deeper history. And they all, I've talked to these men. Each one of them goes, yeah, it's way worse than the church lets on. It's way more complicated than the church lets on. And we're having a lot less um, truth in the stories we tell than, than what the church lets on. In November, so I tried to make it work. As I knew this history, I also said like, ah, I, I'm just not going to let the history bother me because these are good people and we're having, we're having positive experiences serving each other and we're making a difference in the world. And then in November 2015, we enacted a policy which not only said that disciplinary courts were mandatory for those who were in homosexual marriages, which by the way, the church now acknowledges that being gay is not a choice. We all grew up with Spencer W. Kimball's uh, The Miracle of Forgiveness which taught us that masturbation makes us homosexual. Which, if we're honest, brethren, that means all of us would probably have an issue with homosexuality, right? So we try to say that masturbation led to it. Spencer W. Kimball taught that not having a father in the home led to homosexuality. Spencer W. Kimball taught that having a dominant mother led to homosexuality. And the church now acknowledges none of that's true. The church admits that being gay is not a choice. And in November of 2015, the church came out with a policy that uh, not only made mandatory a disciplinary court for homosexual marriage, but prevented the children in that family from receiving the saving ordinances of the church, including the Holy Ghost. So on one hand, we like to say our teenagers, they need the Holy Ghost. They need it to get through school. They need it as a tool and a resource. And then on the other hand, we say, but yeah, those kids don't need it. Those kids don't need it. That's not fair. That's not right. By the way, uh, Utah has the highest suicide rate in our country. You don't think that has anything to do with Mormonism, if you're honest with yourselves? You don't think there's a drop of our shaming and marginalizing our kids who are gay? Imagine being a gay kid in this ward. Imagine being a gay kid in this state. Do you think they feel good about themselves? Do you think they see an opportunity to enjoy a happy and wholesome life? If I ask each of you to be celibate for the rest of your lives, intentionally, don't hold hands, don't go on a date, don't kiss anybody, how many of you would sign up for that? And you see, our leaders, our prophets, when they get, when their wife dies, Elder Oaks, Elder Nelson, they remarry again. Why? Because they're lonely. They check all the boxes. They don't need to remarry again, but they remarry again. Why? Because they're lonely. And yet we have people who are LGBT who can't, they didn't choose that. We now know the science. If a ring, if a one finger is longer than the other, you have a statistically higher chance of being gay. If you are the fourth son in a family rather than the second, you have a statistically higher chance of being gay. The church acknowledges that. 
And yet we still hold these beliefs that these people are broken. They need fixed somehow. And they're just human. It's no different than being left-handed. It's natural. And I know we want to like, oh, no, it's not. That's not the reality. The science says so. And with the highest suicide rates, specifically between 11 and 17-year-olds, there are gay kids hanging themselves from their parents' rafters. There are gay kids putting guns in their mouths and pulling triggers because they don't feel loved in this church. I've seen these. I know these kids. I've talked, I've talked to their parents. I've talked to transgendered kids who are on the brink of suicide when someone like me who understood the issues took them aside and lifted them up and took them in and told them, don't worry about that. You're loved. Don't listen to what those people tell you. You're loved. There are people deeply hurting. When they discover this doesn't fit or they're gay, um, women in the church often feel this way as well. So the suicide rate is not only the highest, it's also the fastest growing in the nation too. And we like to say that's the elevation. But we don't care that Colorado's got some mountains. We don't have a good excuse. We don't have a good reason for this. Children and sex abuse. Sam Young, who's outside right now on the other side of the building, was just recently excommunicated. He also served as a bishop. He was recently excommunicated for asking the church to change its policies around youth interviews. Utah is one of the highest states in sex abuse, too, by the way. Do we know that? I'm sure that has no connection to Mormonism either. Think about this. We're one of the few religions left in the world today who permits one-on-one -on -one interviews between an adult and a child behind closed doors. We are one of even fewer religious systems that then proceeds to ask children questions of a sexual nature. If I went around the room and asked each person, how many of you were asked by your bishop if you masturbated? And if you came to your bishop with some sort of sexual sin, I would love to ask each one of you if you'd been asked questions that you thought, wow, that was a little inappropriate. He asked me circumstances and context that wasn't necessary. That's what happens in a church when you also have lay, untrained leaders who have interviews behind closed doors and are permitted to ask sexual questions. You see, to be a bishop, you could be a plumber or an electrician or, in my case, a carpet salesman. And you can sit with 12-year-olds or even 7-year-olds as you prepare them for baptism, and you're told whatever the Spirit asks you to ask, go for it. And so you can ask anything. And some leaders, because we created a space, some leaders end up abusing these kids or harming them or causing trauma to them by asking things they shouldn't. So not only are we one of the very few churches left on the earth right now who ask questions behind closed doors with a stranger, essentially, and a child, we also have an untrained leadership. We don't learn boundaries. We don't learn ethics. We don't learn what causes more pain when we ask it, when we think we're helping. We don't realize that when we talk to a young kid and teach them Mormonism and teach them that this kind of a boundary is safe, and now they go out into the world and they think these one-on-one -on -one conversations with a man behind closed doors is safe. So your daughters go to BYU and they let this RM come home and they think they're safe in his presence because he's a priesthood holder and they've been taught their whole lives to trust in these situations. And what we've done is we've created very unsafe boundaries where abuse happens. What about those who have doubts and questions? You see, Marlon Jensen and Terrell Givens both said we are losing our brightest, our best and brightest. The folks who are leaving the church over doubts and questions are the people who read, who are willing to critically think, 
who are willing to question things and are willing to say, what if what I was taught wasn't true? My gut tells me, and again, I can't prove it, it's all anecdotal. For every hundred people who dive into the messiness that's Mormonism's history and its policies and doctrines, my gut tells me about 95% of those end up outside the church at some point. Why? What do we do with people who have questions? We shame them. We tell them there's not safe places to ask those questions. We push back against them. We tell them the things they're sharing are anti-Mormon propaganda. And it's not true. It's the facts of our history. We're going to have to come to grips with it. Some members could care less about history or truth claims. But for those who care and who are willing to get uncomfortable, it is almost always falls apart for them. So I would challenge you when this is over, instead of walking to your cars and going home, those are good people on the other side of the building. Go walk up and shake their hand and ask them their story. Give, give yourself 10 minutes to ask two of them to tell you your, their story. They cared. It wasn't that Satan came in and they got lazy and they wanted to sin and they just wanted to drink. That's not what happened. They read Mormonism's history outside of the correlated material and it fell apart. And so they took back their lives and they chose to live their lives a different way now. So do that. There's donuts over there, there's cider, there's hot chocolate. They'll be nice. They'll smile at you and they'll shake your hand. Ask their story. Ask why it fell apart for them. Because their story is my story. In our church, we tell lots of stories. We badmouth Simon's writer for leaving because his name was spelled wrong, when that isn't why he left, by the way. We badmouth Thomas Marsh for leaving over milk and strippings, even though that's not historically accurate either. We badmouth the three witnesses for their time out of the church, and we fail to discuss what they've actually written down about why they left and what was going on in the church. We badmouth William Law and William McClellan. We claim the Nauvoo Expositor was just spreading lies. None of those stories that we tell in our manuals about those things and a hundred other are true. When we go to the source material, we find out that the stories we tell aren't historically accurate. Even in the present tense, we excommunicated D. Michael Quinn in 1992 for telling the factual history. We now quote him in our gospel topic essays and refer people in the footnotes to his books that he was excommunicated over. We excommunicate John DeLynn, who's out in the back as well, for acknowledging that this history doesn't add up. We excommunicated Kate Kelly for questioning our patriarchy and simply asking our leaders if they would ask God if women could have a larger role in the church. We excommunicated Sam Young for asking us to reconsider our youth interviews and the dangerous boundaries that take place in those. And now, my gut tells me you're going to excommunicate me for shining a light on the, all of that that our history doesn't match up, and that we treat people in very unhealthy ways. And I've also been honest about the dishonesty of our leaders. By the way, we don't have one healthy story of someone who's left our church. Go search the primary manuals. Go search uh, James E. Talmadge Articles of Faith, or church, search Gordon B. Hinckley's Truth Restored. Search any of our curriculum. We don't have a healthy story of anybody who's left. We don't let people leave with their dignity. 
We don't let people leave when they came to an honest, sincere conclusion that none of this added up. We treat them horribly. Every story we tell says they're broken, they're tares among the wheat, they're the chafe, they've fallen, they've apostatized. We don't have a single healthy story about people who leave. When someone comes into the church having left some other religious system, how courageous are they? How brave are they? When someone as a seeker of truth deconstructs Mormonism and says it just wasn't true and I had to go out, what do we do? We turn our backs on them and we treat them like they're broken and less than. There is no healthy space in Mormonism to ask questions. Elder Oaks says questions are honored, but try it. Try walking into a Sunday school and raising your hand and saying, that story we just told isn't true. When you know the story isn't true, and everybody in the room doesn't know. <clears throat> Some of the stories, by the way, um, I'll, I'll show it in a moment. My communication with leaders. Again, I've talked to Elder Holland. I've talked to Marlon Jensen. I've talked to the scholars. Every one of them admits our history is not accurate. We're working on it, but we don't want to talk about it. It's got to stay under. We can't, it has to stay hidden. We can't talk about it. So those changes will occur, but it can't be out in the open. Thank you. I'm here today because of my criticizing leaders for being dishonest. Elder Ballard says we haven't hidden anything. I hope on just some little degree you can acknowledge that from what I've shared to you today, if what I said is true, we have hidden some things. Um, Stephen Snow, who was the church historian, said we need to be more transparent. He said in the past, we used to withhold things. We used to not share as much. And we need to be more transparent. If we say that in another way, it means we need to stop hiding things. We need to start talking in the open. So when Elder Ballard says we haven't hit anything, that's not honest. That's not truthful. Elder Ballard is being dishonest because he does know the history. He's talked about, we need to know the gospel topic essays. He talks about how he's read them. He does know these issues. But he doesn't want to acknowledge that we haven't been forthright with you guys. You guys received a story that doesn't hold up to the data. It doesn't hold up to the facts. Joseph Smith lied about polygamy. We know this. He kept it from Emma. That's a sin of omission. He told the public he wasn't practicing polygamy while he was. That's a lie of commission. No matter how we spin it, that's a lie. So to say our leaders don't lie isn't true. Joseph Fielding Smith cutting out the 1832 First Vision account, that's dishonest. He didn't want us to see it because he himself understood it was a peculiar, his own words, peculiar First Vision account. Brigham Young continued to blame the Native Americans for the Mountain Meadows Massacre long after he knew it was his own people. Wilford Woodruff gave the 1890 Manifesto, acting as if the church was stopping polygamy, but guess what? He continued to authorize polygamous marriages underground. That's dishonest. We can justify it, maybe. We can say he had to. It was for the good of the church, but it still was a lie. In 1984, Ronald Pullman, 
for the gentleman in this room who are a little older, I'm sure you recognize that name. He was a member of the 70. He gave a conference talk in 1984. Gave the talk. It was a talk about leaning more as you grow in the gospel on yourself and less on the church. When the talk was over, they had him re-give the talk in an empty conference center and put a cough track in the background and then put that on your VHS tape that you got the general conference. So if you happen to remember in 1984, thought you, he you thought you heard Ronald Pullman give one talk in conference and then put your VHS tape in and heard a second talk, and you thought, wow, that's not the way I remember it. That's true. It wasn't the way you remember it. It was very different. And so the church had him re-give the talk with a cough track in the background, and they said nothing about it. So now you can go on YouTube, and you can type in Ronald Pullman, and you can see both videos side by side with each other, and you can see that they are completely different. Here's what Elder Stephen Snow said exactly. He said, my view is that being open about our history solves a whole lot more problems than it creates. You see that? We might not have all the answers, but if we are open, and we now have pretty remarkable transparency, which means we then didn't, then I think in the long run that will serve us well. I think in the past there was a tendency to keep a lot of the records closed or at least not give access to information. Elder Ballard said we haven't hid anything. So when I put liar, as harsh as you think that is, the reality is next to the church historian of our church, a general authority, that liar stamp is true. He said, but the world has changed in the last generation. What's changed? It's the information age. It's the internet. With access to information on the internet, Stephen Snow says we can't continue that pattern. I think we need to continue to be more open. In other words, there's still things they're not telling you. Yes, our leaders are dishonest, but you can't call them out as dishonest. The thing with Elder Holland, I did a podcast episode titled Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. It's cute. And it's harsh. But I show five times using Elder Holland's own audio juxtaposed against the actual data that shows that he is in fact lying. So you can again say my tone isn't okay. You can say I'm being too harsh. But the reality is he did lie on five occasions. The guy has a problem with honesty. And this is a guy who I considered a friend who reached out to me the attached letter was received in my office a little over a week ago. Title, this is to Marlon K. Jensen from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Uh, while I was on assignment in Africa, would you be good enough to handle, as you feel appropriate, this letter from Bishop William J. Reel, who is currently serving as a bishop of the Sandusky, Ohio Ward? Please express to him my love and best wishes. Tell him I would respond personally were it not for other demands, including a grueling trip to Africa. I'm concerned about such people. I've spoken to Elder Holland. I considered him a friend, and yet I also put my foot down and say he did lie. Should I be punished for telling the truth? Should I be punished about talking about our messy history? Should I be punished for telling a leader and saying that guy's lying when the data imposes that he did? The issue is not about the lies, though. Sadly, it's whether anyone like me is allowed to shine a light on them if that light imposes that we each get really uncomfortable and our religion must come face to face with its unhealthiness. Stories in our church that aren't true, by the way. Brigham Young's transfiguration. The two first witnesses to that weren't even in town the day it happened. John D. Lee, Orson Hyde. 
Both of them in their journals say they weren't in town. They're the first two guys to tell us that that transfiguration occurred. The Sweetwater Crossing, when we talk about these three 18-year-old boys, they weren't 18, there were more than three, and they died so long after, and yet we try to tell a story that they died so soon after, and bring them young, promise they'd be in the celestial kingdom. That's not true. The seagulls and crickets, seagulls eat crickets all the time. And how Brigham Young took control of the church? I would challenge each of you to go home tonight and do some serious research on how Brigham Young took control of the church. It's not the story we were told. No, and by the way, nobody along the way has ever accused me of lying or fabricating these details. And when I share them with anybody in the church, including apostles and church historians, they admit that what I'm telling is the truth. Only that it's unacceptable to say it. It's unacceptable to share the truth. I have, through this entire process, maintained integrity, vulnerability, and authenticity. I have only spoken the truth. So, President, I recognize that everyone in this room, their responsibility is to make sure the procedures are followed. It's your job to decide whether I'm an apostate or not. Tonight, you get to decide whether seeking and also telling the truth are acceptable endeavors in Mormonism. You get to decide whether the facts matter or whether we simply need to protect a story and authorities, no matter how harmful or dishonest that story or those authorities are. Brethren, tonight you may have thought it was me that was on trial, but it was never me. It's the church that's on trial. It's its integrity. It's its honesty. It's the church that's on trial, and in part, each of you as you sit in judgment of me. That's all I've got to say. So, as you guys can see, my husband is smart man. He does not say things just to say. He loves to learn. He loves history. So, like he said, you know, he came to this. I just thought it was the coolest story ever. He wanted to know about it. So that's what he did. He learned about it. And when he found out that it just did not add up, he was alone. He didn't even tell me for a while. And he didn't tell me because he first heard of the story of where marriages crumble. Divorces happen. Families are now broken. There's, we get so many messages and visits about how he's helped people personally with their marriages or helped them feel not alone, helped them feel like they're not crazy. He's validated them time and time again. We get these messages just out here tonight. A young lady said, Bill, back in February, I was on the brink of divorce. And thanks to you, I my marriage is safe and we're happy and we're together we get these all the time and so now because bill has only sought out truth and knowledge my eternal marriage my way back to celestial kingdom it's on the line not because he wants to sin or that he has sinned it's because he wanted truth and search for knowledge. I've not done anything that's immoral. 
I'm not here because I'm caught in adultery. I'm not here because I did some kind of immoral sin. I'm here because I told the truth, and we're not really supposed to talk about that here. So now we see what you guys do. Now we see if you're willing to accept the fact that this gets really messy. And are you willing to let somebody stay among you who knows it, who knows it doesn't add up, and who can point you to the very sources that determine that this isn't what it claims to be? That doesn't mean it's true or not true. It just means that we framed it in a way to be faith-promoting, and that doesn't hold up. So if apostles have lied, can you excommunicate a guy who shines a light on their lying? That would seem like that would be a lack of integrity on your and the church's part, not mine. So let's see what happens. I'm done. served in this church. I've served these people. This is the language and the symbols in which I operate in this world. One doesn't, want, so in, in the Jewish faith, people leave Orthodox Jew and they become a Reformed Jew. There's a space for them to be less literal. There's a space for them to still belong, but not have to buy into the story fully. In Mormonism, we don't have that. We, we decide, like, this is the narrative we're going to hold to, and anybody who publicly says something different, we're going to start to distance ourselves from them. This is my tribe. I want to be here. Now, this is not a healthy space for me to be active at the moment, but my hope is in 20 years the church will come around. It'll create a new story, which, it, by the way, just published the Saints book, which is a new history. If you go read that, it's not the story you grew up with. So the choice you have to make is, can you let me be a member and be honest to what I find while the church works out the fact that its story is inaccurate, not mine. This is my tribe. Most of us, so that we know about how the brain develops, most of us stay in a black and white world. We see the world very binary. There's us and them. There's black and white. There's cat people and there's dog people. As people mature, as their brain develops, and it only happens about 20% of the population, they become less binary. They don't see the world in black and white terms. I've gone through that process myself. Did you teach your kids Santa Claus? You didn't. But I'm guessing if I went around the room, people would say, yes, I did. And Santa Claus is a lie. But there's truth inside lies. There's importance in myth. 
And myth binds communities together. So we know that when a tribe gets to be 150 people or more, you have to have myth stories to hold them together. The trouble is that a myth story isn't true, but if a tribe stays around long enough, it takes those myth stories and makes them true. It makes those stories understood to be true stories, even though when they first were created, they were just myths. So I see truth in Mormonism, even if I don't see Mormonism as true the way you see it as true. Does that make sense? Like, I'm, In other words, I'm still teaching my kids Santa Claus, even though I know the story doesn't hold up. Because my kids get something from it. There's value in learning myths, even if for a while you believe them to be literal. We don't shouldn't kick people out because they teach their kids Santa, Santa Claus. It, that makes no sense. So in a binary world, we say, like, if you believe, stay in. If you don't, get out. But what I'm suggesting is Mormonism, as time goes on, I think you're already seeing it. McConkie Mormonism is gone. Joseph Fielding Smith Mormonism is gone. We don't talk about the Earth being 6,000 years old or Cain being Bigfoot. Those things are disappearing. The reality is we're moving into a space where we're going to allow less literal belief. If you go out right now and watch the last 10 talks given in the last three months by church historians and scholars, you'll notice they've stopped using the word translation when referring to the Book of Abraham and the Book of Mormon. They now call it a revelation. In other words, it came completely out of Joseph Smith's own head. We still want to say it's inspired. But we're no longer saying he, he translated the characters on these documents into another document so that we could read it. So again, you say, why don't I belong? And I say, this is my home. And so it's not about whether I resign or not. It's about whether you're going to make space for someone to be a non-literal believer who also shines a light on the truth to stay. There's a, there's a lot of people out there. I get a million downloads a year. There's news agencies that have already covered it, and there's more reporters coming tomorrow. It's not me. They're, right now, what they're, the story they're looking at is whether people will let guys like me tell the truth about our leaders and about our story and whether we get to stay or not. That's being decided right this moment. So far, every time it's been excommunication, excommunication, excommunication. And we send the people saying these very same facts out the door. If, if anybody says I'm not saying a fact, I welcome it. I'm happy to sit down with any one of you, President, you included, and take anything I say and show you the original source and show you that our church teaches an accuracy. So can I be a non-literal believer who shines a light on the truth and stay in this church? That, I don't have to decide that. You do. Yeah. 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 Every other way has been tried. Whenever somebody starts to speak up in the church and talk about this stuff, the church starts to put pressure on local leaders to do something. Um, Again, I would challenge you, the only way you're going to understand that, because you're not going to understand that story unless you walk across the other side and you ask those people nicely, say, look, before I make any decision on Brother Real, tell me your story. Spend an hour. Is my salvation worth an hour out there talking to people? Go ask them their stories. What they're going to say is, they tried every other way. And the church's culture is such, and it's sponsored by the leaders, the church's culture is such that one cannot have doubts and questions in this church without beginning to feel shame, without parents beginning to shame their children, without wives beginning to threaten divorce with their husbands. It's unhealthy. 
So you say, like, why don't we try a different way? It's not working. These people are crying and they're falling apart and they don't know what to do and they feel alone. When, when they discover this stuff, they're the only person in their ward. They're the only person in their state. And luckily, now we're to a time at the internet age that it's two or three or four families in every ward. I bet every one of you knows somebody who stepped back. Ask them their story. It fell apart. So you ask for a better way and I say, we need, we need to start speaking up because these people deserve validation. These people deserve us going like, wow, that must have been hard to lose your faith and have it fall apart. Mm -hmm. will, will you tell me an effective way? Sure. Says we're not hiding anything. I've actually had some, some evidence of it. I've actually been able to get some progress up north until we went back to what we were doing and then the church shut down. I had a lot of I wanted to be fighting in I really did not want to put it Can we tell these folks too? Like we tried a different process. We sent five questions up to a 70. That 70 sent those five questions right back to him and said, we're not going to answer those. Actually, no, they said, here are the five questions, President. You keep working on it. We will work on this as well. And that's when the- I would welcome those answers. That's a dismissal. It's easy to say I'm not interested in finding answers. That's not fair. I've spent 20 years trying to find answers. Have I been dishonest? Have I been dishonest? So you, but you're going to have to communicate me on I don't know. You get that, right? Like, I don't know. You might be telling the truth. You might not. But yeah. So you shouldn't excommunicate somebody on I don't know. Again, no, no, calling Elder Holland a liar. That's true. Which which particular thing am I being excommunicated for? Like, let's get one specific thing where we say, look, you cannot say this. Somebody in a position as an apostle, as a prophet, you know we hold. Even if they lie. Okay, I'm glad. That's beautiful. You guys see that, right? If, a, if, if an apostle lies and a member shines a light on it and that apostle is unwilling to acknowledge he lied, it's the member who shines a light on it who gets excommunicated. That is a lack of integrity in the system. There's the, there is no valid recourse for those people to get their questions answered.
I guess I could just, it, it just, the problem is when I say it, I'm just so quick about it. I, I just can't think of any earthly institution that, that promotes and allows to be torn apart from within. There are, mm -hmm. there, there are productive ways to figure out that, uh, I mean, just coming off of the state, but also, also the key. Church, if the church moves on every single thing and, and changes their, 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 their itself to the whims of, of public opinion, you're nothing but what everybody else is. We're just talking about the facts. I don't care about public opinion. The facts. Well, on every single issue, if, if we are, you, you bring up the LGBTQ community, and yeah. the church just swings around whatever is popular and whatever, whatever everybody else wants to do. Name one doctrine in this church that hasn't changed. Do you agree there's unhealthy systems where there is no healthy way to address? Don't step forward and say we messed up. Name, name an instance. Elder McConkie in 1978 does a little bit of that. Elder Rufdorf says we've made mistakes, some of which may have violated doctrine or principles, but we don't get anybody who says, yeah, you're right. I lied. Yeah, you're right. I, I messed up. You're right. I thought I had the Lord's will and I didn't. So the trouble is there's people out there are hurting and nobody validates them. Nobody takes the time to say, like, man, it wasn't that you tried the least. It's that you tried so hard to make it work, and it didn't. 
So I hear you, but in a church run by Jesus Christ, we ought to have some integrity. Please. Yeah. Yeah. stories. It's two stories. The church was the most beautiful thing in the world to 17-year-old me. Because I bought it. And I, I believed it with every bit of my being. And I lived it. I, I showed up at every move. I showed up at every service project. You don't, you don't, again, you can call it pride. But on some level, you don't make bishop at 29 unless you're doing Mormonism to the best of your ability. And I was. But to me, so there's that 17-year-old me to 32 where it worked beautifully. But the moment you stop seeing us and them, and you start seeing there's human beings both in and out of the church, you start to have compassion and empathy for people who are different. So I have a friend who their gay son almost killed himself. I have other friends whose kids did take their lives. If we're going to protect leaders, and excommunicate truth-tellers while kids take their lives. What message is that? If, if the, too, the only way real changes happen in the church is when somebody at the bottom shines a light on it. We changed our interviews a little bit when Sam Young starts talking. We start making room for women to talk in general conference when Kate Kelly raises the voice. We start putting out gospel topic essays when John DeLynn asks questions. Every one of these shifts and changes where we become healthier happens when people like me stand up and say, the truth matters. So 17 to 32, it was beautiful. And from 32 on, I realized how much we hurt people who don't fit the mold. How much we damage them, and we even cause them to take their lives. We cause their spouses to divorce them because we make them other. They're no longer one of us. And we tell, like, let's, let's circle the wagons. That guy belongs over here, and we're us. It has to stop. Tonight, you can say, from here on out, we're going to value the truth. And we're going to start having empathy and sympathy for people who are hurting this falls apart for. We're no longer going to shame them. We're all going to distance them as other. We're going to start saying, you're Mormon. If you can't make it work and your beliefs, I don't care. This is a church where everybody truly can fit in. Those people out there, they just walked away because they feel alone. Nobody validated them. Nobody made them feel. So it's two different stories. If you, if you ignore the history and you ignore the harm the church does, it works wonderfully, as Elder Hoopdorf said. The moment you open up your mind to say, is this really hurting people unnecessarily? Mormonism becomes very toxic and unhealthy. And I'm living in both of those worlds where I love what it did for me, but I don't like what it's doing to me and others right now. I cared too much. My integrity is not in question here. My tone may be. My tone might be in question, but my integrity is not on the line here. Nobody ever has said, I've not done anything immoral. 
And I've not done anything untruthful. You made that very clear. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I, I appreciate your sincerity. I really think that you, you the things that you have answered. Um, I know a lot of the stuff that you brought up. Yeah. I've been aware of a lot of it. Yeah. The question is, how do you, knowing what you feel is, is correct about the prophet, how do you feel about him? Is he a prophet? Did the Lord call him? Did he say, did he see what he said he saw? Um, is the Book of Mormon the only correct book on the face of the earth, as the prophet Joseph Smith said? So I'm going to answer your question by focusing on the Book of Mormon. I still love the Book of Mormon. Do I believe it is an ancient historical text? No. But I think it's scripture. I still feel... Do you believe he translated I don't think the church anymore claims he translated it. I think the church is in the midst of acknowledging it contains I too much. Disagree. I don't mean to be. I know. And the trouble, I know, and the trouble is that you're going to have to find out over the next 15 years because the church is already walking back from it being a literal translation to it being a revelation out of Joseph Smith's head. And that's the words from our own church coming out in the last six months. And, and if you want, I'll be happy to send you the references for where the church is saying I, those things. Yeah, I, I understand. So, so it's scripture. Is Joseph Smith a prophet? Did he see what he said he saw? I wouldn't define him as prophet the way you would. But if we define prophet as somebody who pushes against the status quo and calls us to connect with the divine, and while we like to say Jesus spoke to him and that's what makes him a prophet, I think history actually shows that prophets are people who perceive some dysfunction in the status quo and they push back. And they generally do it in ways that try to connect us to the divine. Um, and I think Jesus did this all the time. Jesus is constantly pushing against his own true and living church of his day. If you see who Jesus criticizes, it's the religious leaders of his church, which we believe is the true and living church of his day. Jesus himself seems to have no problem saying, those leaders in my church, they're one-off. They're missing the mark. And yet we, we have no problem with something like that. When Joseph Smith says things like uh, he understood that none of the other churches were true and he understood that the sermons of the minister didn't hold up, like he's pushing it back against the system. That seems to be what a prophet is. So my definition of prophet would be very different from yours, but you're not going to catch me saying he's not a prophet. Um, I believe the Book of Mormon is scripture, but I also believe it's scripture in the same way that the Bhagavad Gita is scripture, or the Quran is scripture. They're mythical stories meant to connect us to the divine. And when taking literally, we, we miss the mark and we hurt others. So, for example, in the Book of Mormon, when we say um, that we take away, that, that the, the Lamanite priest took away the virtue of the Nephite daughters. I, I don't remember the exact, but you know what I'm talking about. You can't take away someone's virtue by raping them. Someone's virtue is who they are. It's, it's, a, it's an incorrect way of using rhetoric in language and theology. So if, what, if you take it 100% literal, you're always going to miss the mark when, some, when the scripture is one-off. Your ability to say, like, there's myth there, and there's inspiration there, but I don't need to take everything verbatim. It gives you room to say, like, oh, that hurts people. That's not healthy. Set that off to the side. This piece is useful. Let's read it. I have no problem with the book one the scripture at all. I, I still read from it. Do I believe it's a literal translation from gold plates? No. And I think I could demonstrably show 
at least enough space that you would say, yeah, there's room, there's room so to think that. Three witnesses, what they state in the, in the title page, and the eight witnesses, they, so none of them were telling the truth. Here's the trouble. Those 11 men didn't only speak on those two pages. Their testimonies go far and wide in other documents. And they speak of these, in one place they'll say it was a physical experience. In another place they'll say it was a spiritual experience. In one place they'll say they saw the plates. In another place they say the plates stayed covered. Their testimonies are not cohesive. We like, as Mormons, all we do is open the book and show the one testimony. The reality is those 11 men said lots of things. And some of those things contradicted each other. But they never denied what they said they saw. But they contradicted each other. Um, we're kind of way over. Brother Ray, Brother Campbell, Brother Mayer, 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 Brother I feel like we allow enough time, and I, I think that uh, they both that they had said everything that they wanted to say, and, and I believe that she listened with the intent, and I, I believe that we uh, gave you our complete and full attention, and that everything was done in love.
Can I just say it's not fair to say I don't believe anything about the church? I don't think that's fair. Sure. Sure. So why don't I share my testimony? Um, I don't know that Jesus ascended on the third day. I've studied the historical Jesus as well. That said, I've been deeply affected by his mercy and his grace. I've started another podcast called The Mythical Jesus where I take the scriptures and think and talk and speak about Jesus because I love him. So I can't ascribe to knowing. I can't ascribe to even probably believing. But I can say I hope. I have serious doubts that the Book of Mormon is a historical document in terms of an ancient translation. But I have a deep abiding testimony of it as scripture. Do our leaders talk to Jesus today? Not in the way they tell us they do. I think that is also demonstrable. But that doesn't mean that I don't think if the church is going to make a change, it doesn't come through an inspired thought through the top. And for me, that's enough to hope in these men as prophets of some sort, even if they don't act all the time with integrity. So is this the true church or not? I've not spoken on that at all. I just said it's not what it claims to be. So I have a testimony on some level of Jesus. I've been affected by his grace and mercy. I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, even if I don't believe in a, a, a historic ancient translation, which Elder Holland has said, we make room in our church for those who have non-literal belief in the Book of Mormon. Do I believe in prophets? To some extent I do, and to some extent I don't. It's a mixed bag. I don't see the world in black and white ways anymore. Um, it would be really sad in my mind. As you point out, if this is true and all these facts come together and I'm being accurate, if the church lacks integrity, I wouldn't say it has no integrity, but it lacks a certain amount of integrity that we all expected it to have. And if you're acknowledging on some level that if I'm being accurate, I've told the truth, it would be a shame to excommunicate somebody for essentially shining the light on a lack of integrity and forthrightness and honesty on the church. Again, I don't think, at the end of the day, this decision... I don't think it has anything to do with me. I'm just one more guy who's shining a light, and when I'm done, six months from now, somebody else is going to be doing it. Sooner or later, our church is going to have to get comfortable with, it, with its story, with the facts of its story. And it's trying to, but it's doing it behind, in the shadows, 
And I don't think that's healthy for the people on the other side here. That's it.
Just say one more time. I would just say go out on the other side there and ask people to tell you why it fell apart for them, so you can have more empathy for them and their stories. Yeah. Well, that concludes the audio of the entirety of the Disciplinary Council of Bill Real held November 27, 2018 in the High Council Room of the Stake Center. In closing, I just want to express my appreciation and, Bill, the appreciation from a grateful nation for your integrity, your honesty, and your courage in going before your High Council and your Stake Presidency 
and proclaiming the truth, boldly, nobly, and independent. I'll be closing out this episode with one of my favorite songs from 1973 by The Four Tops. Never has it had better application than to you, Bill Real. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Cause you never know where the knife will go and they ain't missed yet. The sponsor by this thing.